and sold off their beautiful puppets. Mr. Lin says that all his former apprentices have now found other jobs, and that his own son is running a factory rather than learning to move puppets. Mr. Lin is now 70, and as he nears retirement, he's come to the view that the art form is likely to die out entirely in the coming decade. Despite this grim assessment, he says there are still plenty of places where you can admire the beauty of Budaishi puppets and their clothing, and even take in a show. For example, Taipei's old Dadaocheng neighborhood features both a theater and a puppetry museum. For his part, Mr. Lin hasn't given up on live temple performances. He's often out until late in the evening, delighting lovers of the puppet theater and keeping up a family tradition to the very end. I'm Curious John, and I'll see you again next week. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Shirley Lin with In the Spotlight. Welcome to In the Spotlight. I'm Shirley Lin, and with me in the studio today is Ellen McIver, who is from Edinburgh, Scotland, and uh, he's a professional recruiter, you know, like a headhunter. Uh, and also a musician. So, well, let's meet Ellen. Hi, Ellen. Thank Hi, you so much Shirley. for coming in. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah. So you've been in Taiwan for, you say, 10 years Yeah, now. almost 10. It'll be 10 almost years 10. this August. Mm, yes, almost mm. 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. Why are you in Taiwan? Uh, well, I, I usually give a different answer to this when people <laughs> ask. Yeah, which so one are you going to give me? I mean, the, <laughs> the, the, main, uh, the main reason is I, I finished my master's degree in 2008. So it was during the financial, the global economic crisis. And most ambitious people in the UK will move to London after they graduate university. And London was a disaster zone. There were no jobs there. And all of my friends who had managed to get internships there had had them cancelled. So it was it was a really bad time to wow. finish university. And I, I went out with a friend of mine who was working for Morgan Stanley in the finance world and hated it. So he had decided he was going to quit that job and, and move to Asia to teach English for a year. And I thought you were going to take his Morgan Stanley job. <laughs> no, no, thank you. No, thank you. Okay. Yeah. And, and so, so, so I, had, I had decided because I was 22 years old. So it was a good time to, I'd never been to Asia at that time. So it was, yeah, it was, seemed like a good idea. And we just kind of Googled teach English in Taiwan and then ended up applying for the first job we found and then flew out here. Well, you could have gone anywhere to teach English, but you guys chose Taiwan. Yeah, I was I was telling you that story just before we, we kind of went live. So I think the reason we're in Taiwan is because when I was in political tutorial during my master's degree, we were talking about small nation states, and I had compared Tibet to Taiwan and my tutor had told me no you're completely wrong and I was really embarrassed in class so I think after the class I had gone away and learned about the Taiwan situation and about the political relationship with China a bit more so that I didn't embarrass myself in class again (laughs) and so I think when when it came down to choose a place in Asia to come out to we didn't want to go to South Korea because his brother was there uh, and oh, so we, oh. yeah, we wanted to do something new. You oh, know, okay. we didn't want to follow his brother, and we didn't want to go to Singapore, or Japan, because they just felt a little too rich. I, I, I don't know <laughs> if we were 
I don't know if we were accurate in that guess. Uh-huh. Um, and Taiwan felt like a nice middle ground. And I, I think we were right. It was, yeah, it was it was a very new experience for us arriving in, in the country. Right. Well, of course, a lot of foreigners, you know, to come to Taiwan for the first phase was to teach English, just yeah. to get into the market and all that. And then eventually kind of branch out and do their own thing. But yeah, uh, apparently you did that and you didn't quite like it. The teaching well, English part. I never liked it. <laughs> Honestly, I never liked teaching English. I I arrived in Taiwan kind of wanting to mess around and travel and play music and make friends and stuff. And I realized when I arrived, we did nine days of teacher training at Hess. Uh-huh. And I realized very quickly that they take this really seriously. Like mm-hmm. they were saying to us, okay, if you don't pass, we're going to send you home and... I was all of a sudden like, hold on, this is not really what I signed up for. And so honestly, I was I was probably quite a difficult employee. Uh-huh. Yeah, I wasn't, you know, I, I was good with the kids and I was good with the parents, but I was terrible with the management. Uh-huh. Like I I did not respect them and, and they did not like having me. As it, you know, I feel like in the English schools, from personal experience and the experience of a lot of my friends as well, in the English schools, the problem is the management, mm. right? And so in a lot of cases, you feel like a lemon being squeezed. And so they'll do things like, oh, before you came into work at 9.30, but now everyone comes in at 9. We're all going to come in at 9 now. Or they'll say things like, oh, you know, now you've got to do Saturday mornings every once a month. So they'll, um, they'll, they'll constantly be doing these things. Squeezing to, out Yeah, of you. squeezing, squeezing the juice out. And it, I used to push back a lot. And like, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm quite, I'm quite a nice guy, but I can also be a really difficult uh-huh. person. Okay. And I'm really happy after I transitioned out of teaching, I, I made a full 180 actually, because I, like these days I'm the guy that kind of goes above and beyond for the company. I do overtime. I'll go to, you know, I, I don't need to be told to do something to make a step to benefit my job or my company. So I think it was I think it was an attitude thing. I think it was a mindset. I wasn't happy. How long did you stuck with that? I did it for two years in Taichung. You just stuck for two years. I, I did mean, it longer than that, actually. Wow. I did four, yeah. So I did it for two years in Taichung, and my girlfriend at the time, who was American, she had got into Janda Master's program, mm-hmm. and she had got a full scholarship to study in in Jiangsu University in, in, in Muja. Yeah. Right. So we moved up to Taipei together, and you know, at the time, I think she was getting something like thirty three thousand a month for the scholarship. Mm-hmm. And so I took uh, an eight-hour-a-day kindergarten job so that I could cover our kind of rent and living and stuff like that. So I did it. F- I taught for four years in total. And then, how did this uh, professional recruiter part come in? Yeah, that's an interesting story as well. So after after my girlfriend had finished her master's program, we had already decided we were going to leave and move to Shanghai because we wanted to do something career We wanted to do something in business. And so we moved to Shanghai with all of our stuff. We didn't have any friends or even a working visa or a place to stay. We just kind of moved there and started applying for jobs. And then I was lucky enough to get an interview in a headhunting company. Oh, so, okay. So. But I had looked really hard. Like, I had applied for so many jobs, and I had even done things like 
you know, dressed up in a suit and just walked into offices and handed in CVs. And I went to boarding school in Canada. I tried to leverage some of those connections and, you know, did some lunches. But I was really, in, in two months of job searching, I got one interview. Oh. And I got that one job. In Shanghai. In Shanghai, yeah. that's right. But you said it was actually easy to... You it's mean, easier. You meant like for foreigners to work. Yeah. Uh, but whereas in Taiwan, it's a little tough. Well, with the... um. The regulations, yeah. which you said is like 40 years old and I don't know. I don't yeah, know. What I th- yeah, I think yeah, Shanghai is an easier place to find a non-teaching job. There's a lot more diversity in the workforce there. So in Taiwan, most of the foreigners are from English speaking countries. Mm-hmm. They're from America, Canada, UK, Australia, South Africa. Whereas in Shanghai, they're from everywhere. Mm-hmm. And in Taiwan... Usually people, they either teach English or they're very, very senior level. They're that kind of expat, expat. Let's say they're French. They've been sent over by a French company to be the country manager here. There's not much diversity there. There's Mm. either the kind of expat, expats or English teachers. Where in Shanghai, there's interns and mid-level and a whole bunch of people in a whole bunch of different functions and, and industries. You're listening to In the Spotlight with Shirley Lin. Well, I'm sure it's also the timing because, you know, China was like opening up at a time, sort of, when you were there. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. I mean, it's a. I don't really have the answer to that question. I just know that if you're a foreigner and you want to have a non-teaching job, places like Shanghai, Hong Kong, Singapore, Bangkok are much easier places to do it than Taipei. So so that's why we left. You know, We had been here four years and loved it. I love Taiwan, I still do. And we had decided to, to move to Shanghai. So I was able to get a job in headhunting in Shanghai. I did that two years. Yeah. Yeah. And then, but then you guys came back. Yeah. So my, the girl that I moved to Shanghai with, she and I had broken up within the first two months. Oh, I see. It was a disaster, to be honest. I mean, I, I still got a lot, a lot of love for that girl, but she and I had not worked out, unfortunately. The first two months, you know, oh, you guys were in a foreign and I place, had no never friends. been there. I mean, I can imagine how intense doing I, yeah, that. I had no friends, and so. we had been together four and a half years. It was, right. it was honestly, it was the hardest time in my whole life. Oh, it was real. I was really lonely. Yeah, I had no support there. It was really difficult. It was really, really difficult. So I found a new girlfriend. There. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Basically, I I came and back. And then she wanted to come back to Taiwan. So <laughs> the, this this story is just as crazy, actually. So I had gone back for Chinese New Year to visit my friends because I was in Shanghai. I was really lonely. I was just out of a relationship, so I had gone back to see my friends and my bandmates. And I had started speaking to this girl called Laurie, who's now my wife, and we had decided to meet up for a date when mm-hmm. I was back. So we didn't really know each other very well. But we decided to meet up for a date. You know, within a few days, we had hung out three or four times. And she was saying, well, what are, you know, what are we going to do? Because, you know, if you just want to kind of have some fun while you're in Taiwan, you know, that's fine. But I'm not going to do that. You know, mm-hmm. that's not really who I am. And so, you know, if you want 
Where's she from? She's Taiwanese from Taichung. Okay. And so she was saying, you know, what are we going to do? If we're going to date properly, then are you going to come back to Taiwan? And I said, I can't do that. I just got a job that I, yeah. you know, I just got a, a job in headhunting. And she said, okay, I'll quit my job and move to Shanghai. Whoa. And so she was, she moved to Shanghai, I think five weeks. And so she, yes, she and I, that was, that was a little bit crazy as well, because we didn't really know each other. And she had just quit her job and moved to Shanghai for a boy that she doesn't really know very well. And we're married now. So I guess like, <laughs> there's, a, there's definitely, there's, thankfully, that's a good story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, got a good ending. Yeah, it's got a good ending, yeah. Oh, so did she get a job there, though? Yeah, she was able to transfer internally with her company. She worked for Lion, oh, Lion Travel. Oh, yes, the, yes, tra- yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So she was able to move from Taichung Lion Travel over to Shanghai Lion Travel. Perfect. Yeah, and actually the reason we moved back to Taiwan is because yeah. she did a tour with the owners of Costco. So from Seattle, the the three gentlemen who own Costco, the 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 wholesale supermarket. Oh, okay. And at the end of the tour, she was the tour guide. At the end of the tour, they said you should come and join us. And so she was offered a job in in Taiwan Costco and so we moved back. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so that was uh, we're really you know, a really good jump in her career as well. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So she's, wow. she's doing really well now as well. Oh, okay. So she's still at Costco, whereas you're now your own company, recruiting company. Not, is it? Oh, no, no, it's not. Oh. I, I've, I've, I've worked for three headhunting companies. So I worked for a Chinese company in, in, in Shanghai called ZWHR. When I moved back to Taiwan, I got a job in Robert Walters, which is a London-based consultancy company. And two years ago, I joined Bola, which is a Hong Kong-based company. Oh, wow. Switching around. All right. Yeah, okay. you got to. <laughs> it's the way, the way to earn more money. Right. Yeah. Now, the reason why you like headhunting yeah. or this, you know, recruiting job. Yeah. You know, what's the, the part that you love? Well, I mean, like I told you with my story in Shanghai, I fell into headhunting. I, I had looked for a job for two months and I'd been given one interview. So I did not have options. So it was, you know, when I got given that job, it, my attitude was, okay, I'm going to put my head down and I'm going to work as hard as I can. And I'm going to prove that, you know, I deserve to to be promoted or I deserve, to, you know, to, to do well in this industry. But I think after a while, I realized that, it's a really good fit for my personality. I think I'm very, I'm very extrovert and I'm very good with people. I think that that makes me a good headhunter. I'm quite, I've got quite high EQ, and I have very little hard skills. So things like Photoshop or or accountancy or any any kind of computer stuff, I'm completely useless with. Oh wow! Great, so, so, join the club. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think I think I'm very you know, I I should be in a people person role, like a, a, either a sales job or something like I'm doing. Yeah, I think oh. it's a good fit for my for my character. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that is so interesting. <laughs> but here you're recruiting foreigners or Taiwanese, Taiwanese yeah. too. Usually, okay, so-, so usually I will do senior level Taiwanese professionals into foreign companies. Okay. Into multinational companies. Okay. So clients like Adidas and L'Oreal and Johnson and Johnson, these kind of companies are always looking for senior, really good talent. So how does he go about meeting these senior level expats? Well, here on for Ellen McIver's Life Story in Taiwan Part Two by tuning in next week. For In the Spotlight, I'm Shirley Lin. 
Classic Shorts: Stories from Chinese History and Literature. 哈喽 ，Welcome to Classic Shorts. I'm Natalie Soon. We're already in the month of August, the eighth month of the year, and this month we're going to look at stories behind the idioms with the character for eight or ba in them. This story comes from the annals of Chinese history, from China's very first imperial dynasty, the Qing Dynasty. The Qing Dynasty began in 221 BC, and it only lasted about 15 years to 206 BC. The Qing Dynasty may have been short, but it was a significant one in Chinese history. It sought to unify all of China by highly structured political power and a large military. That was when ambitious projects like the Great Wall of China. Which was used to protect the dynasty from the northerners was built. The dynasty also reformed and unified the nation in many ways. It standardized currency, weights and measures, and perhaps most important of all, Chinese written characters. But the Qing emperor was also one of the most brutal in Chinese history. He wanted to keep control of China by purging all traces of old dynasties and all criticism. There's a famous reference to the burning of texts in 213 BC, and the live burial of 460 Confucian scholars in 210 BC. The burning of books and killing of scholars was recorded by a historian from the Han Dynasty, which followed the Qing Dynasty. So it's not the most objective account of what may have happened, but the phrase "burning of books and burying of scholars" has become a legendary one. In Chinese culture, and it refers to the Qing Emperor's brutal ways. Now, to why the dynasty fell? Well, it had to do with the key advice of a Li Shiqi, who hated the brutality of the Qing Dynasty. He wanted to see it overthrown. Li was a key advisor to Liu Bang, who ended up overthrowing the Qing Dynasty. Now, the emperor of the Qing Dynasty, Qing Shi Huang, had a lot of enemies, as one might imagine. Three assassination attempts were made on his life. After those close calls with death, he became paranoid and obsessed with immortality. Ironically, he ended up dying on one journey, looking for a Taoist potion of immortality. Taoist magicians had claimed it could be found on an island guarded by a sea monster. When Qing Shi Huang died, his chief eunuch and prime minister hid the news of his death when they returned. That's because they wanted to change his will to place the emperor's weakest son, Wu Hai, who was named Qing Ershi, on the throne. They were planning to make him a puppet and control the empire. Qing Ershi did do what they wanted. He executed many ministers and imperial princes, continued massive building projects such as lacquering the city walls, enlarged the army, increased taxes, and arrested messengers who brought him bad news. His ruthless rule inspired a more revolt from people all over China. The empire began to fall apart as men attacked officials, 
led their own armies and declared themselves kings of their own territories. Qing Erzhi was so easily manipulated that the chief eunuch was even able to make him commit suicide. After that, Ziying, a nephew of Qing Erzhi, ascended the throne and immediately executed the chief eunuch. But public unrest continued and a popular revolt broke out in 209 BC. That's when Chu rebels under the lieutenant Liu Bang attacked. Xinying was defeated in 207 BC, surrendered shortly after, and was executed. The Qing capital was destroyed the next year. Most historians describe that as the end of the Qing Empire. Liu Bang then declared himself Emperor Gaozu of the New Han Dynasty on February 28, 202 BC. One person who helped Liu Bang overthrow the Qing Dynasty was his advisor, Li Shiqi. At one time, when the Qing Dynasty was still strong, Liu wanted to attack the dynasty, but Li gave him this advice. The Qin Dynasty is still too strong. First, go and occupy Chen Liu province and the Qin troops there. Then you will be in a better position to overcome the Qin Dynasty. Chen Liu has a lot of grain and crops, but even more important, it has roads that can take you anywhere. That province will help you succeed in your ultimate mission of overthrowing the Qin Dynasty. Liu listened to his advice and eventually succeeded. Li's advice also led to a popular idiom that describes a place that has lots of roads that can take you anywhere. Classic Chinese Phrases and Idioms There's a classic Chinese idiom, four through eight reach. Si tong ba da. Si tong ba da. It describes a place with convenient transportation and also a place that has roads that can take you everywhere. You can say, ever since the metro was built, Taipei has become a si tong ba da city. Now it's even more so with the hundreds of public bike stations and paths throughout the city. So again, the idiom of the week, si tong ba da, four through eight reach. Thanks for tuning in to Classic Shorts. I'm Natalie So. Time machine. Today's time traveler is John Van Trieste and the destination, the world of lacquerware. Lacquerware is one of those art forms like porcelain and silk weaving that East Asia has led the world in. Though the art is not native to Taiwan, it is spread here too, and the great traditions of both China and Japan have left their marks here. Over the past few centuries, objects from bowls and chopsticks to gift boxes have either come here or been made here. And since the 20th century, Taiwanese lacquerware has begun to feature Taiwanese designs, too. What's great about lacquerware is that it's beautiful and shiny, it can keep for thousands of years, and it's not necessarily expensive. Though lacquerware has largely been replaced these days, one exhibit at the Kaohsiung Museum of History seeks to draw attention back to these beautiful qualities and to lacquer's place in Taiwan's past. 
Museum curator Huang Yujuan is here this week to introduce Taiwan's history of lacquer. The raw material lacquer is made from the sap of a tree that is applied as a coating onto some other surface. Ms. Huang says this type of tree is not well known in Taiwan. The basic process of making lacquerware can be divided into three stages. The first involves shaping the vessel to be coated with lacquer. These vessels are often made of materials like wood, bamboo, paper, and even glass. Sometimes the vessel is simply a mold used to shape the lacquer, then removed, leaving a hardened lacquer shape called bodiless lacquer. In the second stage, a material that strengthens the base is spread on the surface. This is a material that's never seen, but which Ms. Huang says is crucial, the secret to lacquerware's longevity. Layers of lacquer are applied and smoothed, and after many layers are finished, patterns and decoration might be added in. This is the stage where a craftsman's real artistry can shine through. The pieces on display in this exhibit show a few of the most common techniques used to decorate lacquer. There is one process that results in a pure, single-colored finish, simple but elegant. In another process, the artist cuts a pattern into the lacquer with a knife and then fills in the grooves left behind with some other material. Artists can paint with different colored lacquers to create an image. They can also use the stickiness of the lacquer to inlay other materials, like shells. Visitors to the exhibit can compare the effects each of these techniques creates. Where did Taiwan's earliest lacquerware come from? The answer is China, a place where lacquerware dates back millennia. According to Ms. Huang, the earliest example of lacquerware yet unearthed comes from China's Neolithic Hamudu culture. And the museum's own collection includes an example of lacquerware from the Han Dynasty, somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,000 years ago. Lacquerware developed into a high art over time, and during the Ming Dynasty, between the 14th and 17th centuries, it was well-developed indeed. Ms. Huang says that during this period, one craftsman called Huang Cheng penned a manual detailing the tools and techniques used to make lacquerware. She says that while more techniques have since been invented, this book still stands as the Bible of lacquerware makers today. Towards the end of the Ming, ethnic Chinese migration to Taiwan got underway, and it continued after the following dynasty, the Qing, took control of Taiwan's west coast in the 17th century. Ethnic Chinese migration to Taiwan eventually brought with it a demand for lacquerware. Of course, people could import their lacquerware from across the Taiwan Strait. But new arrivals in Taiwan did include some lacquerware craftsmen. People could also have their lacquerware made here. The earliest piece in this exhibit dates from this Qing era. It is a richly decorated box meant to hold pastries offered to the ancestors. In 1895, another country with a long history of lacquer took control of Taiwan. This was Japan, a country whose reputation for lacquer gave us the English word Japaning, used for European imitations. 
During the years of Japanese rule, Japanese immigrants came to Taiwan, and they brought their own lacquerware with them. Many of the items had the same functions as Chinese lacquerware. Japanese serving trays were unique to Japan, but otherwise, things like bowls, chopsticks, and boxes were common to both traditions. When it came to design, though, Japanese lacquerware stood out. Ms. Huang says that designs were different, and sometimes techniques too, such as the Japanese technique of scattering powdered metals like gold and silver into lacquer to add sparkle as needed. Styles coming in from Japan didn't replace Chinese-style lacquerware. Instead, both varieties coexisted in Taiwan until Japanese rule ended in 1945. The museum's collection of around 200 lacquerware pieces comes largely from the two eras we've talked about today, the Qing and Japanese periods. Over 100 of these pieces are in this exhibit. With so much to look at, it's hard to know where to begin. But five of these pieces deserve our special attention. Each dates from the Japanese period and features specifically Taiwanese designs. This may be why these pieces have been deemed important cultural properties in the museum's home city of Kaohsiung. First up on our list, there's a dark-colored vase inlaid with cowbone to form the shape of Taiwanese orchids. Then there is a tiny Japanese-era jar, just 10 centimeters high. It features a detailed image of indigenous Thao people from the Sun Moon Lake area of Taiwan. The people in the image are making traditional music using wooden pestles as instruments. These two lacquerware pieces would have been sold as souvenirs of Taiwan. The Japanese period was the time when tourism to the island first began. There are also three boxes that were meant to hold smoking paraphernalia. Tobacco was once a bigger part of people's lives, and those who could afford to stored their smokes in style. These lacquered boxes show elements of life on Orchid Island off Taiwan's east coast, featuring designs like the canoes of the local Daul people. As we've already mentioned, it's not all fancy items. Lacquer was always used to make more ordinary objects too, and these are on display as well. One piece is just a simple water ladle, and it's important here. That's because one of the exhibit's goals is to show the wide range of everyday uses lacquer can have. Ms. Huang says that traditional materials like pottery are still widely appreciated today. But lacquerware is something people in today's Taiwan don't have quite the same connection with. In many cases, lacquerware has been replaced by plastic. There are even plastic objects that mimic lacquerware's looks, and Ms. Huang says those who don't know better might even be fooled by them. The exhibit tries to put lacquer back in the spotlight. There are good reasons to do this, and good reasons to bring lacquer back. Like plastic, lacquerware stays around for an awfully long time. Like plastic, lacquerware can also be used to make any container or utensil. But because lacquerware is beautiful, lacquer objects get reused, hung onto, and passed down instead of thrown away. At a time when Taiwan considers plastic's place, an old art form may offer one alternative. 
Ms. Huang says both the museum and the government would like to see lacquerware make a comeback. The good news is that in today's Taiwan, lacquerware is still being made. It may no longer coat our smoking boxes, but Ms. Huang says there are still craftsmen out there in Taiwan drawing on centuries of outside influence and finding their own ways to bring this art form forward. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another journey through time. From a fruit market in Tel Aviv to a fish seller in Taipei, the people of our world are working hard to make a living. Are you listening? Tune in to the sounds of your world on Radio Taiwan International. Critical infrastructure is controlled by computers. Okay, so if you take, for example, power production, so what are the critical uh, infrastructures in modern uh, states like Israel or Taiwan? This makes our life better in a way, but also, as I said, makes us vulnerable Hello and welcome to this week's On the Line, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong. Professor Isaac Ben Israel recently visited Taiwan and gave a speech at the Taipei International Book Exhibition. Professor Isaac Ben Israel is a professor at Tel Aviv University and chairman of Israel Space Agency. He persuaded the government of Israel to invest in cybersecurity back in 2010, and now he's been asked to promote artificial intelligence or AI development in Israel. During the interview, Professor Isaac Ben Israel said computer technology is the dominant technology, but besides the benefits it brings, we also become more vulnerable as cybercrime becomes more abundant in our daily life. And our guest today is Professor Isaac Ben Israel. Professor Isaac Ben Israel, you gave a speech at the Taipei International Book Exhibition on Israeli Military Defense, and your book will be published in Taiwan in the near future. Can you talk about this? Uh, yes, well, the book, uh, I've written it originally in Hebrew, of course, is about the failure of the Israeli intelligence corps in the 1973, October 1973 war. As everyone knows, we were surprised, we were surprisingly attacked by our uh, neighbors, by Egypt and Syria simultaneously, and there was a failure uh, of the intelligence to give a warning to this war. And then I asked myself what were the roots of this failure and came to the conclusion that it was a, a kind of wrong logic that people usually use in daily life as well as in an intelligence estimate. And this logic doesn't fit the uh, uh, problem of uh, intelligence warning. Therefore, I devised a new logic. And, and what the book is about is uh, how, what is this new logic and how one should use it in order to avoid surprises like this in the future. So that's why you gave the speech, and the speech is also entitled The Logic and Philosophy of Military Intelligence Estimate as well. Yes, 
because this is a subject of the book. Taiwan and Israel, we know, share a lot in common, especially in the area of cybersecurity. Now, what do you think Taiwan should learn from Israel? Well, uh, some of the uh, uh, things we did in Israel are maybe unique to Israel because we have a different uh, system. But some of them are universal, and those universal lessons can be applied uh, everywhere by anyone. For example, um, uh, one universal attribute of cybersecurity is that the rate of change is so fast that you can never uh, uh, predict what will be the next threat. And therefore, you have to be prepared in a more, uh, in a deeper way to meet threats that were not predicted before, that you couldn't uh, uh, prepare yourself for them. And this can be done only by having the right ecosystem. It's a full ecosystem. Uh, the main base for this ecosystem is, of course, human beings, uh, educated human beings, talent, etc. And if you have these uh, uh, people, knowledgeable people, you can hope that they will um, uh, know what to do when these unpredicted uh, threats will appear, provided they will have also a lot of offer of new ideas of technology, they, can, they would be able to deal with this problem. This, this is common to everyone and can be shared by Taiwan as well. Professor Isaac Israel, you persuaded the Israeli government to invest in cybersecurity back in the year 2010. What was your reason behind your idea? Well, the reason was very simple. I realized that computer technology is the dominant technology of our century, I would say, uh, starting from the second half of the 20th century. And as computer technology develops, we use more and more computer chips, put them everywhere, wearing them on our body even. And therefore, um, uh, besides the good results of it, the benefit we, we draw from it, uh, we become more and more vulnerable because uh, bad guys, and they're always bad guys, may use this uh, dependence on computers uh, not for the benefit of society, but for their own benefit. And therefore, I realized that cybersecurity will be a growing demand, not only by, in Israel, because it's a universal technology, everywhere. This is the, the uh, global phenomenon. And therefore, uh, uh, and until that time, we uh, dealt, like the rest of the world, with cybersecurity only within community of defense and intelligence and things like this, I came to the conclusion that we should take it in a way out of the closet, make it a legitimate economic uh, um, business uh, because everyone will need it in the, uh, in the coming day, in the coming year. You're listening to Underline brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong and today I'm speaking with Professor Isaac Ben Israel, who is a professor at Tel Aviv University and chairman of Israel Space Agency. You mentioned bad guys, but how does Israel cope with the bad guys, the cybersecurity threats? Israel has around 200,000 to 2 million cyber attacks every day. Yes, this is a fact of life. 
Now, the, the problem is to deal with it. And, and, and we deal with it, first of all, with the national level cybersecurity. It's, it's not enough to have to protect, you know, each facility can protect itself by putting firewalls and, and detecting uh, systems for attacks, etc. It's not enough. You should clean the whole cyberspace, the network. You should clean it, and it can be done only nationally because no one is allowed to, to clean the whole network. Uh, so you need a national uh, uh, level. You need uh, um, the, the, end, the other end, the end uh, uh, point uh, defense. And in between the other layers, it's like an onion. Uh, and once you build all these uh, um, uh, many level uh, defense, you can be relatively protected. You'll never be 100% protected. You can never be 100% protected, but which areas, Professor, are most attacked? Well, it depends on the attacker. Some attackers are uh, interested uh, in, uh, in getting the IP, the, the knowledge, technological knowledge, and things like this. Uh, so they attack... Uh, uh, technological uh, um, uh, industries and things like this. Some attackers are criminals who their only uh, goal in life is getting money, so they attack usually banks and and uh, commercial uh, entities. Uh, some attackers are states, which usually uh, attack uh, computers because uh, today we all, we we store information only in computers, and uh, for spying, you need to hack into the computer, get this information. There, there are many different types of attacks, and each one of them is interested in a different uh, sector of, uh, of our life. Uh, there are several areas you mentioned, and uh, you hope to enhance the financial area, which includes fintech, health, and medicine. Professor Isaac Ben Israel, why this specific area? Well, these are critical for our uh, national uh, security. There is something that we call critical infrastructure. I'm speaking again, uh, I'm speaking in the context of cybersecurity, of course. Critical infrastructure is uh, an infrastructure which is controlled uh, by computers. Okay? So if you take, for example, power uh, uh, production, the power itself is done by machines, but, but the, the whole control is control of computers. So what are the critical uh, infrastructures in modern uh, uh, states like, like Israel or Taiwan? Power production is one. Financial sector is one because we cannot really function without proper uh, financial uh, uh, banks, and uh, etc. And they are controlled heavily by computers. Uh, healthcare is important to everyone, and, and today... Every machine has a computer inside, every, uh, every individual machine, not to speak about the data, which is uh, the, the health data, which is uh, an essential part of the healthcare system, etc. And that's why we, we chose transportation, of course, is, is natural. Trains uh, or aircraft are really uh, drive or flown by, by computers. I mean, there are human beings there to to take uh, uh, the wheel in case of, uh, of emergency, but the normal function is done by computers. And uh, this makes our life better in a way, but also, as I said, 
make us vulnerable to cyber attacks. Taiwan is moving in the same direction, and do you think that Taiwan and Israel can work together in this area? Of course, because we, we speak about uh, technology which is universal, and th- there is no uh, Israeli type of computers and, and, and uh, Taiwanese type of computers. We speak about universal uh, uh, machine, universal technology, and therefore the uh, protection, the, the defense against uh, those attacks on these machines is also universal. So there's no way why uh, two uh, 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 highly developed technological countries like, like Israel and Taiwan will not cooperate. Mm-hmm. And now you hope to invest in artificial intelligence or AI technology. Could you also talk about that, Professor Isaac Ben Israel? Yes. Well, uh, the, you, you mentioned that uh, uh, almost 10 years ago, we, we made a kind of uh, revolution in Israel uh, around the idea of uh, cyber uh, defense, cyber security. Now, uh, we asked ourselves, uh, what should be the next move? What is the next technology related, again, to, to this dominant technology of computers, which is global, which will have global demand and therefore uh, will be, can become like the cyber one, uh, uh, one of the drivers of economy, and, and that will uh, be important. And we came to the conclusion that uh, this technology is the technology of artificial intelligence. Therefore, I got a new appointment from our prime minister uh, half a year ago to, to submit to the government a national plan like I did with cyber uh, that will again make Israel, put Israel in the list of the top five uh, uh, centers of uh, technology globally. An American company, technology company, NVIDIA, says they see Israel as a leader in AI technologies. What do you think of that? I hope it will be true. Uh, uh, we are working, working very hard that... Uh, 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 it will become uh, two. Um, NVIDIA, as you know, is uh, one. Um, there are many ways to increase the power of computation. One of them is by using uh, what we call GPUs, accelerators, and NVIDIA is the leading uh, company in the world uh, of doing it. And uh, there is another way uh, uh, of doing it by, by using more exotic uh, technologies like uh, quantum computers, but, but um, uh, we, we, what we uh, are going to do is to push all these different technologies very, very hard uh, uh, in order to make some synergies between all of them and make AI uh, uh, more uh, efficient in a way. Mm-hmm. So we do hope that there will be more synergy actually between Taiwan and Israel in the areas of cybersecurity and AI or artificial intelligence. And we've been joined on the phone today by Professor Isaac Ben Israel, an Israeli cybersecurity guru. And Professor Isaac Ben Israel is also a professor at Tel Aviv University and is also the chairman of the Israeli Space Agency and the National Council for Research and Development. And that's it for this week's Online, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong. Thank you for listening. I'll send you as we take it. Bye.
Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.